listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series, What the Bible Says About, with a new weekly topic that goes through what the Bible says on important issues of the day. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. All right, today I'm going to actually be preaching from the New International Version of the Bible. You say, why are you throwing me a curveball? I think it's always good to freshen things up, look at things from a different perspective. So if you're using a different translation than the NIV, that's even better than just using one translation, right? In fact, the more translations of the Bible that you have in the English language, if you speak English, the better you have a feeling of what the original language, the Greek or the Hebrew, actually would have said. And when you think about it, Jesus actually preached from the Aramaic, from the Septuagint. He preached from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So our God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. He can actually continue to convey truths about himself regardless of what the language is in. So if you bought a translation of the Bible other than the NIV, open it to Colossians chapter three. If you brought the NIV, open it to Colossians chapter three. If you're watching on the live stream, I encourage you not to take my word for it. Open your Bible or Bibles to Colossians chapter three. And this particular message is the last in our series called What the Bible Says About. And this particular message is entitled What the Bible Says about your entirely new life in Christ. What does the Bible say about your entirely new life in Christ? Now, you might be a follower of Jesus Christ. You might have given your life to Christ at some time in the past, maybe recently or a while ago. This message is uh, pertinent and applicable for you because you need a refresher course. We all need a refresher course of what our lives in Christ consist of and then how we're supposed to live as a result of that. Or you might be backslidden and not even know it. You're going to know that by the time we're done in our time together today. You might be somebody who knows Jesus as your savior, but you might not be walking with him as your Lord. You might be backslidden. That's the the word that is often used in Christian circles, backslidden. Somebody who has slid back from a position that they once were in, a, a way that they were living, right? And you're going to know that based on our time in God's word. Or perhaps you might not know Jesus at all as your savior. You might have grown up in church, You might not have grown up in church, but you're here, you're listening, you're watching, you're participating because God is drawing you and that's a good thing. And so you need to understand what entirely new life in Jesus Christ is all about as well. And here it is in a nice encapsulated passage of scripture, the third chapter of the book of Colossians. That's what we're gonna look at today as we look at what your entirely new life in Christ looks like. Colossians chapter three, beginning in verse one. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, a position of favor and honor. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly or sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, 
But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he's not being exhaustive. He's giving a few examples. You must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity." Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, or songs in the Spirit, with gratitude in your hearts to God. Verse 17, the capstone of this section, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all, do it all, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What an amazing verse of scripture, capstone, the the cherry on top of an amazing passage of scripture. Colossians 3.17 is a great verse to commit to memory. Whatever you do, Whatever means whatever. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's begin with the end and then we'll back up the truck and we'll talk about this whole section of scripture in such a way that you will be able to walk with Jesus and be able to appreciate your position in Jesus or the position you're about to have if you're going to give your life to Christ in just a moment here, okay? but it applies for all of us. I want to talk for a moment about this good enough attitude that we can have in life. Ah, it's good enough. It's good enough. It's good enough. You don't see a good enough approach anywhere in Scripture when it comes to living for Jesus Christ. In fact, you see the exact opposite. A good enough attitude, well, that's good enough attitude is actually a sign that you've lost sight of who you're living for. Whatever you do, whether in word and deed, whatever you do at the workplace, in the family, in the neighborhood, in your mind, the words that slip off of your tongue, what you do on social media, (laughs) Uh uh-oh, what you do on social media, the way you raise your children, the way you treat your parents, the way you care about the poor or don't care about the poor, the way you use the money that God has given you. Notice I didn't say it's your money. It's the money that God has given to you to then be a steward of that money and dispense it in ways that would fall in line with verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you can't do something in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly Father, then you shouldn't be doing it. Let's close in prayer right now. It's enough right there. Everything else we do in the remainder of our time is just bonus, right? If you can't do something in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly Father, stop doing it. If you're about to say something about somebody that you can't do in the name of the Lord Jesus, shut your trap. If you can't think something that is honorable to the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude, then take it captive, take that thought captive, make it obedient to the Lord Jesus. Whatever, in the original language, it's amazing what it says in the original Greek language that this was written in. It actually comes across with amazing clarity, with amazing, unmistakable clarity to what we translate it as in the English. Whatever means whatever. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're about to do, you need to be able to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly Father or you shouldn't do it. So there's your filter. We've talked about filters a little bit. It's good to have filters, spiritually speaking, when it comes to the things you're going to do or not do in the course of your life, the things you're going to think and not think in the course of your life. You want to have biblical filters, and a biblical filter is right here, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. If you can't do something, if you can't think something, if you can't say something, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and what that means is to give glory to the Lord Jesus, with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly father, then don't do it. That's enough for the entire week for you to be able to break through that analysis paralysis that some of us have. Should I do this? What's God's will? Does God want me to do this or does he not want me to do this? All right. This will take care of that analysis paralysis in your life. Can you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you do it with a clear conscience openly and honestly before the Lord with an attitude of gratitude for God the Father. If you can do it that way, if it passes that litmus test, if it comes out the other side of that filter, then go for it and do it with gusto. But so many times in our lives we have this good enough attitude. What I'm not trying to present here is a striving approach to life, that nothing is ever good enough. Some of us have grown up in strict families where we could never please a father or a mother, sometimes father and mother, or maybe we were raised by somebody else, and we are continually striving. Can I get an amen for that or a show of hands? You can identify with that. What I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you need to continually strive as a means of trying to gain your heavenly father's approval. In Jesus, you have your heavenly father's approval. In fact, if we go to Colossians chapter three, look at what it says here. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a position of favor and honor. So God the Father would have not raised and seated at his right side a fake, phony fraud. When Jesus said it is finished, everything was finished. Everything that God the Father required to take care of your junk in your trunk, my junk in my trunk, every single one of your sins was paid for in full. And you've heard me say it before, I will say it again and again and again. When Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he didn't wink. He didn't mean it was kind of finished, that now you need to participate in 
some kind of a religious ceremony. I'm a recovering Catholic. I say that respectfully. I say that respectfully, but I need to say it. Listen, if what was required in the Old Testament wasn't sufficient to take away sin, then why would we think that a new set of ordinances created by man would satisfy and appease God? So when I'm talking about a good enough attitude, I'm not saying that you need to strive and never be able to rest in the merciful, loving, gracious hands of God who, through Jesus, said it is finished. I'm not saying you need to continually strive. When you approach God the Father, you approach the Son as well, and the Son is fully accepted by the Father, so much so that he's put at the right hand of God the Father, a position of favor and honor, complete acceptance. Remember, God the Father would not have put a fake, phony fraud, a liar, a false prophet, a charlatan in that position of honor. He wouldn't have done that. But what I'm talking about with a good enough attitude is many times because of our sinful nature, which Paul is saying, put it aside, put it to death, deal the death blow continually every day and throughout the course of every day, a death blow to the sinful nature. What happens is we can gravitate toward this good enough approach where we're no longer doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward our heavenly father. That's the good enough attitude. Does that make sense? Am I resonating with anybody? Does that, does that make sense? You need to be able to rest in the fact that what you do now in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the glory of God the Father, giving thanks to him, that's acceptable to God. Done deal, it's over and done with. You can move on to the next thing that you do or think, the next interaction that you have in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly father. That's the way God wants to free us up so that we live that way. Just be careful in the course of your life that you have it in your family or in your business or in the workplace or in ministry had settled for an attitude that's just good enough. Well, it's good enough. See, I'm, I'm one of these people that I believe that when people look at what the church does, when people look at what Christians do, their mouths should be on the floor because we're not doing stuff for money, are we? In fact, if you're doing something, if you're only getting a paycheck from your employer, come on now, if that's why you're doing what you're doing, you need to do some serious soul searching and why you're here, why you're there, and you need to rediscover this idea of whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the almighty dollar. Nope, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. That's your motivation at work. So that when you get your paycheck, you need to be able to look at it and say, I can't believe these people are willing to pay me for what I do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not even in pastoral ministry. But every Christian, every follower of Jesus is called to be in ministry. Some of us do that in a non-religious setting. Some of, that do, some of us do that in an overtly religious setting. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the new priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, spoken of in 1 Peter. And so you're called to be a servant of the Most High God. Paul's not talking only to pastors or elders or deacons here. He's talking to Colossians, recovering sinners, recovering hypocrites. And he's saying, whatever you do, 
Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly Father. So your work matters to God. You need to be good for nothing in the material aspect of things because you're good for someone, and that's the Lord Jesus. So be very careful about a good enough attitude when it comes to your work, when it comes to your child rearing, when it comes to being a steward of whatever God has given you, because whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you should be doing it in the name for the glory of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly Father, whatever it might be. Now, let's look again at Colossians chapter three, the first four verses, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter two, and we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Notice the heart where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. So we see this inseparable intertwining of the heart and the mind the invisible, at least initially, how do you know what's in somebody's heart, it's what's in somebody's mind? By what comes out of their mouth, by the deeds, right? Jesus talks about that elsewhere. But the heart and the mind Jesus is talking about, Paul is talking about Jesus in this regard. He's talking about the effect of Jesus and the unseen recesses of who we are. Heart and mind inseparable. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Now, so many of us are tempted and your children are going to be tempted. Keep in mind, the way you are using your smartphone is discipling your children and how they should use whatever devices are out when they're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Whatever we're using today, it's gonna be on steroids by the time your two-year-old, your three-year-old, your four-year-old grows up and gets their device. So you're discipling your child whether you realize it or not. Discipleship is not something that just happens in a formal setting, in a classroom setting or in a church setting. Your children are watching you in, and learning in the most informal of settings. That's where real learning takes place in life. How you talk to your wife, how you talk to your husband, how you talk to them, how you don't talk to them, silent treatment. You're teaching and you're discipling your children. So you need to be really careful how you're interacting throughout the whole day. And the best way to be careful about how you're interacting is to set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated. Set your heart on things above. Set your mind not on earthly things. Social media tempts us to think about earthly things. Where we're, we, wanna, we wanna tell everybody, here's what I'm eating. Look at this great meal. I got news for you. Most people don't really care about what you're eating. Unless you're making it for them. <laughs> then they care about what you're eating. Now, I'm not saying that eventually, you know, you might use that to lead somebody to Jesus in terms of you share a couple social media posts, right? People are paying attention to what you're doing. You're appealing to their sinful nature. And then you're coming in through the back door and you share something about Jesus. That can be strategic and that can be wise, right? You can do that. But when we look at many of the accounts on social media of what people who say they're following Jesus are doing, by the time you get around to talking about Jesus, it's so watered down. It's almost as if you're reading the reverse standard version of the Bible. The brand of Jesus that you're presenting to people is not the biblical Jesus that's presented in the Bible. And the brand of Christianity that you end up presenting is a watered down, what Jesus refers to, water's an appropriate word here, Jesus refers to it as lukewarm in the book of Revelation. And he has very strong words for lukewarm people. He says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Right. So you gotta be really careful 
Because a lukewarm approach to Christianity is not one characterized by whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you have to be really careful because we're living in a world where even people who say they're followers of Jesus don't seem to be following Jesus too closely. And we're going to get to that in just a moment as well here. But before we go any further, look what he says in verse 3, Colossians 3, 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What's he talking about here? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So what the Apostle Paul's talking about, the same writer of the book of Ephesians wrote Colossians, and God raised us up with Christ. In other words, he didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. He also raised us and raises us from the dead the moment we give our lives to Christ. God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Wow, you are actually seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, in a position that you don't deserve. Jesus deserves that position. Can I get a hallelujah for that one? Jesus deserves that. He was without sin, preached flawlessly, perfectly, miraculous signs and wonders, deserved to take his rightful place at the right hand, a position of authority before God the Father. You and I don't deserve that. That's the mercy of God. It's the grace of God. Grace is where God gives us something good that we don't deserve. Mercy is where God withholds from us something bad that we don't deserve. If anything, we deserve to be in eternity separate from God. So not only did God in Christ forgive us of all of our sins, but he also seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, a position of favor and honor. And look what he says in verse seven of Ephesians chapter two. Why did he do this? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his undeserved favor, his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because in Colossians chapter 3, what Paul is doing, he's saying, listen, right now your life in Christ is hidden. What does he mean by that? My life in Christ is hidden. Well, you're not all that you're one day going to be. God isn't finished with you yet. Well, what are you one day going to be? God finishes what he starts. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until this particular day that we're going to look at right now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant, uneducated about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So if you die as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's referred to as falling asleep because that's not your permanent state. That's why Paul, again, the writer of 1 Thessalonians, is using this terminology. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, meaning you can bank on what Jesus taught about this, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise 
first, those who have fallen asleep. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You get encouraged just by me reading that, don't you? Isn't that true? And so you need to understand, you don't want to have an incomplete understanding of your permanent eternal state. If we read the book of Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth. So your final destination is not in heaven or in the clouds. You're going to get your head out of the clouds one day. You're going to be part of the new heaven and the new earth created in righteousness where there will be no stain from sin. And you will, in a glorified body, Jesus was the first fruits, the first glorified body, resurrected from the dead, you'll receive a glorified body without having any difficulty and struggle with sin whatsoever, the way you struggle with sin and I struggle with sin now, attitudes and temptations, all that'll be taken away. I mean, it's an amazing thing to contemplate. This is what Paul is referring to in part in Colossians chapter three, those first four verses. Your life right now is hidden. You're not all that you're going to be one day. But knowing what you're going to be one day and knowing your position in Christ, see, if you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father, everything's beneath you. Every single sin is beneath you. You need to stop taking the sin in your life as if it's something that you you don't have a say in the matter. Well, I can't help it. That's just what I say. That's just what I do. Well, I was raised in this kind of family, and that's what my mother did, that's what my father did, and so I can't help myself. Yes, you can help yourself. The Holy Spirit can help you even more than you help yourself. And what we're seeing here in Colossians chapter three is the beautiful partnership between you and the Lord. The Lord is committed to your success. Abraham Lincoln said, always bear in mind that your own resolution to succeed is more important than any other thing. It's an Abraham Lincoln quote. Always bear in mind that your own resolution to succeed is more important than any other thing. God is committed to your success. And by success, we mean Christ-likeness. He's committed that when he is finished with you, you'll look like Jesus in character. That's God's commitment. Well, you need to have a commitment as well, too. That's why Paul is talking about these things. That's why the whole New Testament talks about character, 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 character. Change your behavior. Put off the sinful nature. Put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature. You need to be committed to your own success, your own holiness as well. God is committed to that. You need to be committed to that. And as you are committed to that, and as God is committed to that through the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the gift of his word that we're looking at today, you're able to say no toward whatever belongs to the sinful nature. You're able to set your mind on things above, set your heart on things above, not on earthly things, because you died. And all that you're going to one day be will one day be realized when you get to see the Lord Jesus face to face. So since that's your future, it should affect your present. Since that's where you're headed, and that's what you're going to be like, that gives us hope to make the right choices, godly, good, God-honoring, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with an attitude of gratitude, behaviors and thoughts and words and deeds, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul begins here in Colossians chapter three, and he talks about our position in Christ. 
And if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, you're not yet seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. So that sin is not below you, it's within you and it's beside you. And you cannot deal the death blow to your own sin. If there was any other way that we could get into heaven apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. But he didn't die for nothing. He died for something, and that something is you, that something is me. You're important to God. God didn't save junk. He wouldn't rescue something that was worthless. You're worth a great deal to God. You're not worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm not worthy of what Jesus did on the cross, but we're worth a great deal to God, that he loves you so much that he would not only save you, but he would give you a new nature and he would begin that process in you to make you like Jesus in character. So you don't have to be a slave to anger and lust and immorality and gossip and slander and outbursts of anger. You don't have to be a slave to any of that things. You might say to yourself, but I struggle with those things so much. Of course you do. That's why Jesus died on the cross. You might struggle with this particular sin over here and not struggle very much with this sin over here, but you still have this issue that you are tempted with. It's just that you might be weighing this sin as more important or more significant than this one. But all sin is significant and important to God. And that's why Jesus died for every single one of them. So in light of your new position in Christ, whether you have it now and you've forgotten about it, in light of the fact that all you're going to be is not yet realized, and maybe you've forgotten about that, and now you're being reminded, or in light of the fact that you are about to receive the forgiveness of your sins the moment you give your life to Christ, in just a moment when I give you that opportunity, and you are given a position instantaneously at the right hand of God the Father, seated with Jesus, a position of favor, and all that junk, all that sin in your life is now beneath you, What Paul wants us to understand is that your position results in practicality. Your position results in practicality. If your life isn't changing, if your lifestyle isn't changing because of your position, you've forgotten your position. You don't understand who you are in Christ. Look what he begins to say here in verse five. Put to death, therefore. Now, what's it there for? In light of what we just read. In light of your position in Christ, in light of what you're one day going to be in Christ, in light of all that God has done for you and all he's going to do for you, you need to respond. You need to cooperate with God. Put to death, therefore, in light of these facts, whatever belongs to your earthly nature or your sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity. Sexual immorality is sexual activity with somebody other than your spouse. You need to be married and then your sexual activity is condoned and approved by God. You're able to have sexual intimacy. The only type of sexual purity that God honors is either abstinence, right? Refraining from sexual activity, or by engaging in sexual activity with one man or one woman for one lifetime in the context of holy matrimony. Holy meaning set apart. Any type of sexual activity apart from the context of marriage is considered immorality. That's a really simple way of understanding it. So we all need help with that, don't we, in terms of where our eyes go, where our hearts go. You think about what's on the internet and what's on television. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, what's on your smartphone for that matter. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Typically, we think of greed as, well, I can't be that greedy. I don't have that much money. Well, you might not have that much money because you're greedy. Wait, what? What are you talking about? 
You can be a poor person or you can be part of the middle class, that vanishing middle class, and you can still be a very greedy person because as soon as you get money, it comes in one hand and out the other on whatever it might be. You're not giving to God and his work, right? You don't understand anything about tithing and giving, the principle of worship by giving God your first fruits, your very best. And whenever there's an appeal made for money, for ministry, you get hot under the collar, but you, you don't think anything about buying yourself the new it? You don't think about anything about getting an automobile that you, you might not really need or, or a home that maybe is too big for you or going out to eat so many times that when you go to reach for money in your pocket for somebody who has need, it's as if there are holes in your pockets. It's not moths that are eating that. You can be your own worst enemy. So you can be greedy for lesser things. You can be greedy for lesser things. You don't have to have a whole lot of money to be a greedy person, to be an idolater. You can just be a poor steward of the money that God gives you and waste it on things that are temporal, the earthly desires. And you can still be a greedy, idolatrous person. So the playing field is level here, right? But what Paul is saying, he's saying put to death, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're married, whether you're single, whoever all y'all are, whoever you are, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever it is that you do, right? Put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature. Look what he says here. He says in verse six, he gives us a reason. Because of these, because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. You know, that's the whole idea of why Jesus is returning in the second coming. To reward those who are followers of Jesus and then to reward those who are followers of Jesus with rewards. First Corinthians chapter three talks about that. And to reward those who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, when you want nothing to do with Jesus in this temporal life, God will one day grant your request eternally, that you will get what you want for all eternity. You'll finally be apart from the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And by the way, that's not gonna be a good thing. You're gonna be aware of being separate from God and you're gonna wish that you were not separate. Believe what Jesus taught about that. I was going to say, believe me, but you don't need to believe me. I'm not a high enough authority for that. You do not want to be eternally separate from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. And look what he says here in verse 7. This is a really important thing I want us to grasp here because some of us grew up in church and we can't identify with this. The Colossians didn't grow up in church. And that's why Paul is addressing the Colossians in this particular way. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of some of these things. Is that what he says? No. But now you must, it's a no compromise approach to Christianity. It's not a good enough attitude at all. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, that would be a person who didn't speak Greek, or a Scythian, that would be somebody who lived in the southern part of modern-day Russia, Scythians. They were considered 
just one step up from animals, the Scythians, all right? Slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, Paul's not endorsing slavery here. He's talking to the Colossians in a Roman culture where slavery was still permitted. So he's not endorsing slavery by referencing slaves. He's acknowledging the political climate of the day, the socio-political climate of the day where slaves were a reality. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter whether you're a brute beast, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or a free person. Here he doesn't do it, but he does it elsewhere. Whether you're male or female, he does that in Galatians. Paul is giving some examples. It doesn't matter. Nobody's with any excuse here. It doesn't matter who you are. Your focus should be Jesus, and you should put to death everything that belongs to the sinful nature. That's what he's trying to present here, and I think he's doing a very good job of it. But notice he says in verse seven, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander. Slander is evil speech or defamation. It's evil speech or defamation. Saying something false, saying something accusatory, saying something derogatory about somebody else, We get the phrase defamation of character from this. You can have a verbal form of slander or you can have a written form of slander, which you see all the time on Facebook. See it all the time on Twitter. See it on Instagram. It's called libel. It's defamation of character. There are lawsuits that get involved in these kind of things because people say false things, defamatory things, lies about somebody. That's what slander is. Now, the interesting thing here is that when Paul wrote this to the Colossians, they're non-Jewish believers. And there was no church in Colossae for the Colossians until the gospel was preached to them and they gave their lives to Christ. So they weren't following God. So this is why he says to this particular group, you used to walk this way, you used to live this way. And many of us can identify with that because we have a BC life before Christ a time when we weren't walking with God at all, and then we got saved, and then we have an AC life, after Christ life. And we can identify with this, and we take it for granted, but there are many of us who grew up in the church. We accepted Christ at a very young age. Some of us don't even actually remember the first time we did it, our parents tell us, and then we maybe recommitted or made a a more cognizant decision when we got older. And here's the problem with that. We, we see it all the time in the church, and I'm not just saying this church, but churches. Some of the people who cause the most difficult problems in church, are you ready for this? Are we nice and zoomed in on my face? Some of the most difficult people in the church are people who didn't have a BC life. And they, they think it's okay to talk about people, or they think it's okay to, to lust, or they, they think it's good enough. They think it's okay to be greedy because they don't understand the gravity of sin, the weight of sin, that overwhelming pressure of being far from God, dead in your trespasses and sin, when you used to do things that Paul is referring to here. And then that weight was removed from you through the blood of Jesus, and you're freed up and you're light. You cannot necessarily appreciate that because you grew up all of your life. And the problem with that, there's pros and cons to giving your life to Christ at a young age. I tell this to my boys all the time who did that. They, each of them gave their lives when they were four years old and they're walking with Jesus. 
but there's more of Jesus. Titus and Simeon, there is more of Jesus for each of you. You cannot have a good enough approach when it comes to being a walking worshiper, a living sacrifice for the true and living God. Whatever you do, whether in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever means whatever. The problem is if you don't have a BC, if you don't know how your sin caused you difficulty and pain, you certainly don't know how your sin caused other people difficulty and pain. And that's part of the problem. There's a great worship song. I'm gonna read some of the lyrics to it today, right now, by Hillsong Worship. I love this song, and you do too, many of you. It's called Who You Say I Am. Beautiful song, right? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. I'm gonna start reading this in a Dr. Seussian kind of way. Oh, his love for me, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep while I was a slave to sin. Jesus died for me, yes, he died for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. The problem is, so is the person sitting next to you if they're a follower of Jesus. And so are the other people in the body of Christ. They're who God says they are too. And they're a child of God. And they're who God says they are too. And the problem is, without realizing it, nobody would do this intentionally. Make themselves the apple of God's eye Will you just get out of the way. I am who God says I am. I don't know about you. It's my father's house. I get to sit right up next to Jesus. Maybe there's a place there for you too. Someplace in that right-hand side of the Father, maybe. But it's me, me, I, 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 me, mine. And before you know it, we don't realize, especially those of us who grew up in the church, we don't realize that sin hurts other people. And so we belittle our sin and it becomes good enough. Well, I get forgiveness anyway. I know about God's grace. I know about God's mercy. I just ask for forgiveness. Well, that's good that you ask for forgiveness and you have forgiveness in Jesus. But you also need to be restored with other people when you threw excrement on their face and when you steal from them and when you slander them or when you rob from them or when you lie about them or when you whisper about them. You know, here Paul uses the word slander, which is to speak in a defamatory way, to say false things about somebody. Slander is gossip on steroids. Here's the definition of gossip. You can Google this for yourself. Gossip is casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. As a noun, a person who likes talking about other people's private lives. The Greek word that's used for gossip, which we find in Romans chapter one, turn with me to Romans chapter one, Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans. The Greek word that's used for gossips means whisperers, whisperers. 
Meaning, if you're talking about other people's lives in such a way that it was shouted from the rooftops, if that would cause you and the other person to be embarrassed, it might be indicative that it's gossip. If you are the hub central for information and everybody comes to you and knows that you have the latest on whoever, if you are the local equivalent of TMZ, might be a good indication that you are guilty of gossiping too much. I'm not going to say you are a gossip. You might be. But you certainly are engaging in gossip. It's not just saying false, defamatory things about other people that makes it wrong. That's slander. Gossip is talking about the business of somebody else when you have no business talking about it. And it's not good for your business. Uh, certainly, bosses, you have to have conversations about employees. Staff has to have, you know, employees have to have conversations about certain things. Otherwise, you'd never be able to do a performance evaluation, an annual review, all those other kinds of things. But we're supposed to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the sinful nature. And one of those things is whispering. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, this is talking about somebody who is backsliding. Somebody who is backsliding. You know, you can be a backslider and not even realize you've been backsliding. You've been sliding back from walking with Jesus, setting your mind on heavenly things. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, etc., etc. You know, when we engage the flesh, when we engage in sinful behavior, so-called lesser sins that really are not lesser sins, we're on the road to becoming outright God-haters. You understand how serious that is? It's so serious to be a God-hater. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, if we don't, in whatever we do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus with an attitude of gratitude for God the Father, we will gravitate toward doing it for somebody else. And typically that other person is me, myself, and I. So be careful what you put on social media. Be careful what rumor you might fan the flame for. Be careful how you might influence somebody's reputation based on what you say, how you say it, who you say it to. Be careful that whatever you do, that you are doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when you do, when you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, with gratitude, an attitude of gratitude toward your heavenly father, you won't have time for that sinful nature. You won't have time for what belongs to the sinful nature. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ and you are not yet experiencing all the fullness of what you will one day, you have God's word on it, experience. But you can bank on the future because God has promised you and showed you the truth about your present.
God wants you and he wants me. He wants each of us to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we received and the position that we're now experiencing. Let's live like we need it. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.